1: Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, August 20th, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington, joined today by Mike Green. It's been a while since we've had Mike here. I'm really looking forward to this episode. Uh, the markets, looks like everything. A uh, lot of green on the screen today when you look at indexes. Uh, the big winner on the day, the NASDAQ, up one spot, 19%, almost 1.2%, closing out the day, 14,714. S&P 500. Up about eight tenths of 1%, closing out the day, 4,441. Looking out across the week, week to date, looks like the big loser is the Russell 2000 off 2.75% on the week. Russell 2000 down about two and three quarters percent on the week. Uh, Also, China has passed a new data privacy law. Some of the toughest in the world uh, now going into place in China. This is especially significant uh, as China institutes a regulatory crackdown on their technology sector. The NASDAQ Golden Dragon China Index off about 23% on the month, year to date, down over 35%. Finally, a federal appellate court ruled on Friday that the Biden administration can continue to enforce an eviction moratorium. The case was brought by property managers and realtors looking to lift the moratorium, according to the Wall Street Journal. In other words, the eviction moratorium still stands. Evictions remain restricted. Jumping over now, Mike Green, such a pleasure to have you back, man. Ash, it's a pleasure to be here. So, Mike, it's been uh, it's been a,
2: a number of months since you've been on Real Vision Daily Briefing. What are you looking at right now? I'm looking at my Bloomberg screen. As you pointed out, there's an awful lot of green that's going on. I think um, a couple of points that you hit on have been themes that I think I last appeared on Real Vision probably in March. And at that point, I had kind of shared my perception that the leadership was shifting, that we were moving away from the reflationary trades, that the small cap indices had moved very, very aggressively. There's There was a tremendous amount of confusion around the idea of value versus growth, and and I had characterized it. As much more about momentum versus anti momentum. The most shorted stocks had done really, really well. So, by and large, since March, we've been actually seeing a continuation of that trend, right? Where the NASDAQ has begun to pick up, the large cap growth names have begun to reinstate themselves relative to the smaller value or junk or anti momentum oriented names. And by and large, we've seen you know, a fairly significant pause in the reflationary theme right i i would argue there's a couple of reasons behind that the biggest one of course being the disappointing growth coming out of china um so you know all of the themes that you kind of hit of in the, hit off in the first few minutes i think are playing a role in the market that we're seeing today where the us has resumed leadership the uh technology and and in particular large cap names that have powered the bull market really since 2017 um have continued to power the market forward and in a lot of ways this looks very similar to the transition that we went through coming off of the 19, the 2016 collapse in China, following the China deval in the summer of 2015, where we saw a recovery in oil prices, we saw a recovery in commodity prices, we saw a recovery in risk off, or risk on currencies, EMs, et cetera. That, that seems to be slowing and shifting in terms of its leadership. It's difficult to know for certain, but. You know, things I'm watching very carefully are things like the ratio of industrial metals to gold price, right? Which I've talked about in the past. That's a way of measuring the real demand. And it seems fairly safe to say that, you know, a lot of people focused on the supply side of the equation. That is slowly rectifying itself. The demand side of the equation, I think, is increasingly what's in question. Yeah. What questions do you have on the demand side and how are you seeing it? Well, so the biggest thing that I would point people to, and I'm not going to share any charts, but if you look at things like durable goods and the pull forward in purchasing that occurred in those areas, everything ranging from recreational vehicles to stay at home plays like building decks or building uh, new offices, home renovation, et cetera, we're seeing a remarkable slowdown in those areas where not only are the numbers beginning to reflect the fact that people have delayed making purchases because of high prices. And shortages of labor, but we're actually starting to see that in the sentiment as well, where you've seen you know significant deterioration in you know is it a good time to buy a house? Is it a good time to buy a car? Um, you know, all of those are are indicating that things are a little bit more in doubt than they would have been before. And I don't I don't really put it at the foot of the delta variant um, or renewed lockdown concerns. I think those certainly play a role. Yeah, but I think we ultimately know enough that we're not. we're we're unlikely to um, shut down in quite the same way. I hope not, at least. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I struggle to get my head around in this calculus
1: is, if you think back uh, over the last, whatever, 15 or so months, you see this obvious dramatic destruction in demand, this falling off a cliff face uh, from economic activity, the like of which we'd never seen before. Then we have a relatively shallow uh, period of bottoming, uh, and then a very steep recovery. Now, we don't get back up to where we were, and we don't get back up to trend, certainly. Then you throw on top of this questions about the Delta variant. Now, increasingly, we hear about the Lambda variant. It's almost like looking at this uh, in five different dimensions and trying to get a sense of how much of this is a rebound, how much of this is rebound tapering. What's your sense and how you put all of that together in a narrative? Because it's a complex one to sort out.
2: Well, I think it's important to separate the economy into its constituent parts, right? So anytime you try to deal with an aggregate, you're going to end up with very different answers. So if we look at consumption patterns over the course of 2020, restaurant dining cratered and has not come anywhere close to coming back, particularly dine-in, right? We've introduced a component of a dramatic increase in meals at home, whether that's coming through um, grocery stores or delivered food. That has been a significant positive impetus um, the durable goods I would mentioned before, you know, in, in durable goods space, you literally at peak were roughly fifty percent above the pre-COVID dynamic, which represented everything ranging from, you know, people buying um, water skis to people, you know, buying camper homes to you know people buying RVs, et cetera that pull forward of demand, people are not going to buy another RV this year. right? They bought one last year. If anything, they're rethinking that as they contemplate going back to work. Am I going to be able to use this? Can I put it out onto the used vehicle market? And that's, of course, occurring at the exact same time that many of those producers have received a what I would argue is a fake impulse that says, Hey, you know your product is suddenly much more in demand, right? So, right. You, you know those companies try to respond to that increase in demand. Um, my guess is is that that's going to disappear at roughly the same pace that you then see the recovery in dining and restaurants and all that right. sort of stuff, right? So, it doesn't feel to me like there's anything that mysterious about what's going on. It's just we have a staggered opening where. The behaviors and the support that have been pumped right. into the system have led to a very confusing pattern. And then yeah. you go a step further. The other big issue, of course, is how do you adjust the data? So most of the data that we receive is seasonally adjusted in one form or another. What do you do with the 2020? Right. Right. Um, there is no way to seasonally adjust that. And perversely, you almost end up saying we got to throw out the data. Right. The year just doesn't exist. Um, And how you choose to accommodate that, how you choose to account for that type of disruption is going to have a big impact in terms of how you think about what's going on in the world. Yeah, we've seen some people using two-year averages instead of
1: 12-month trailing averages. I mean, just anything to figure out some way to come up with a baseline to figure out what's what from a seasonality adjustment perspective.
2: Yeah, I think it's really hard. I don't think that there is a right answer um, you know, we have uh, I, I have a young intern who's a very active on Twitter, Shri, uh, um, who is absolutely fantastic. You know, and and he and I are regularly going through this stuff, and and what you see is just a pattern of behavior, everything ranging from auto purchases on down that doesn't fit with the historical economic drivers, right? So the best predictor of of do you buy a car is did you get a job, right? Um, if you get a new job, if you become a new employee, particularly in the United States, the odds are pretty high that you need a car to transport yourself, you're going to buy a used car, facilitating somebody else buying a new car, or you'll lease a new car, et cetera, right? This just completely disassociated itself. And there again, we see the underlying dynamics of a false signal that came through. The pandemic led to a collapse in production of automobiles, for example, which is now driving the inventory levels down to impossibly low levels, creating stockouts, creating premium pricing both for used vehicles and for new vehicles. And as you hear people talk about in commodities all the time but extends beyond commodities, you know, the best cure for high prices is in fact high prices because it destroys demand and it encourages supply. And we're going to be dealing with the ramifications of that for a very long time to come. Yeah, very well said. You know Mike,
1: you said something else that I thought was very interesting when you were talking about the the different dynamics of, for example, the dining in market uh, versus dining out, obviously dependent very much uh, on what was happening with the virus. When you look at a chart of the s p five hundred going back to March of uh, 2020 and you see that just incredibly steep recovery. It's just a looks like a forty five degree angle going uh, up and to the right. But what's interesting is for those of us who have been following uh, these markets, You see this extraordinary ping-ponging on a daily uh, basis sometimes, generally a weekly basis, but sometimes daily, where you see this back and forth between growth and value, uh, between other style factors. It's really, when you look at the internal dynamics of this uh, recovery in the U.S. equity market, it really is much more complicated uh, than the chart of the S&P 500 would suggest. How do you think about what's happening internally, sector by sector, style factor by style factor?
2: So, I I think that's a great observation. I think broadly it's true. We have seen um, with the much lower levels of realized volatility, we've seen a significant deterioration in the correlation between sectors, right? So, on one day, reopening stocks will do really well. On the next day, um, you know, work from home stocks will do really well, right? And they almost feel like they're trapped in the stance. So that's indicative of a very high supply of gamma into the market, where the dealers have a ton of gamma. And effectively, what what occurs in that environment is is that the index itself is marching upwards, but the pulse that's felt by the individual constituents is subordinate to that index component, right? So if the stocks sold off the day before, a momentum investor is going to try to say, okay, this is a breakdown in value stocks. Therefore, I'm going to go buy the, the growth stocks. In the meantime, the dealer is going to do the exact opposite because they're effectively trying to manage the market into a flat position. The notable exception to that is in the extreme large caps, the technology names, the Microsofts, Apples, et cetera, of the world. They're so large relative to the rest of the index that they, by and large, are setting the pace, right? So so their behavior is ultimately um, a critical component in terms of whether the market is going up or down. You've heard a lot of people refer to the dynamics of deteriorating market leadership or the breadth is beginning to deteriorate. Again, that's just another way of saying small cap stocks are underperforming, right? Um, So I, I would broadly just put it into the category of when you see this extraordinary 45 degree line, particularly post March sort of marching up, right? Where the market just behaves with this incredibly high sharp ratio type dynamic, The explanation for that is the decay of option positions and dealers basically being given the luxury of every single day slowly hedging out a decaying option position. Um, There's really no fundamental information that flows through in that sort of setting. And I think that's, again, one of the big challenges that people have, because we're all looking at the markets and saying, hey, wait a second, the S&P is up 18% for the year. And yet the economic surprise index is hitting decade lows, consumer sentiment is falling apart. How can we marry these two up? The answer is very simple, right? As as myself and others have highlighted, you now have a market that is largely dominated by technical factors and market structure. Yeah. It's just not that much information.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads.
1: Yeah, this is an incredibly important point. So for a retail investor who may be uh, participating in the cash market, uh, just buying stocks, who's hearing this for the first time, and they realize they've just heard something profound uh, in the way that you're talking about the positioning, uh, the derivatives positioning, gamma hedging, give us a thumbnail explanation of what that means to someone who may be hearing about this for the first time.
2: Sure. So in in the simplest form, imagine I um, buy a call option right? There are two ways that that call option transaction can occur. I can buy from an existing holding holder of that call option, in which case there's no activity for the market maker except to match the two trades, right? That's done on the exchange with very little influence. But if I want to buy a call option and there isn't an existing call option to be sold to me, the dealer will synthetically create that option. And the way that they would do that in a call option is they would sell me the call option, and then they would buy a fraction of a, um, a share in the index or a spy if you were using an ETF, right? right The management of that delta hedge, that small long position that I need, as the market goes higher, the delta of that call option gains, it means the dealers have to chase, right? If the market falls, the dealers are going to sell because they're going to reduce their position. That's the easiest way to think about it from a long option standpoint, and it tends to be the easiest way for people to think about it. But now flip it on its head and imagine that we're looking at a world where in very low interest rate environments, the dominant feature is actually people who want to sell options to generate various forms of yield, right? Or to, there's an expectation that returns are going to be low because valuations are really high. So I own the S&P 500 and I sell a call option against the S&P 500. Well, now you work that process in reverse. And so when we talk about the dealers being long gamma, what that means is is on net, the dealers have been sold options by the street, by by market participants, and their hedging activity takes on the opposite characteristic of the market. So when the market goes higher, they sell. When the market goes lower, they buy. And that feature has largely defined markets in a post-GFC type framework where the very low levels of interest rates have created a tremendous amount of demand to enhance income in one form or another. We don't have great fixed income instruments. And so increasingly, people try to convert equities into fixed income instruments.
1: Yeah, and the gamma is just the rate of change in the delta per uh, $1 change, one-point move in the underlying asset price.
2: Correct, so on, on, on the, the literal definition of the gamma is how much does the delta of the option change? In other words, how much does your hedging ratio have to change based on the move of the underlying, And if the dealers are long gamma, that means that when the market goes up, they actually find themselves more long. When the market goes down, they find themselves more short. And as a result, their hedging activity is in the opposite direction. Yeah. And it's nonlinear as well. So as the changes increase, the rate of change increases. It's nonlinear. And and, uh, I would toss out an additional component to that. It's both nonlinear in its behavior and its non-stationary in terms of its exposure. Right. So when when you enter into the end of a month, and I would suggest that's a big chunk of what we've seen in the past couple of days, if you enter into the end of an option expiry period, I'm sorry, not a month, um, that gamma decays very very rapidly, right? And the behavior of the market can change quite significantly. In the past several months, a number of people have noted the coincidence that market corrections tend to occur around option expiry. My sense is, is that people tried to trade ahead of that a little bit today. And by and large, I think the technical term is might have had some faces ripped off.
1: Mike, I have to say, you are one of the best in the world at understanding and explaining this. I recently did an interview with uh, Rob Arnott from Research Affiliates. Rob was the editor of the CFA Journal uh, for many years. And I actually started the interview by saying, Rob, you know, you did an interview with Mike Green uh, last year, uh, last summer. It was one of the most beloved interviews in Real Vision history. I'm hesitant to even attempt to follow the conversation that you and Mike Green had. Uh, This is really right in your wheelhouse. And it's interesting because people think uh, about markets as being driven uh, by fundamentals, by the economy, by the functioning of the economy. But this is such an important point that there are technical factors, uh, things like these derivatives uh, getting offsides, gamma hedging that are so important in understanding the day-to-day and week-to-week movement of these markets.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's right. I would suggest that it has, you know, there are, there are a number of factors. The option dominance at short time horizons is increasingly evident. On the longer time horizons, there's um, impacts from the Fed and the perception of the Fed put, right? Raising the effective safetyness of owning stocks if there's a central bank that's gonna step in and help you. And then, of course, as you know, my my personal favorite and cross the bear is on the the dynamics of passive, which I just continue to think is um, the true driver of the underlying bid in equities as we move uh, equities and also fixed income, as we move from discretionary traders that tend to trade on forward expected value to non discretionary or systematic traders that one hate holding cash. And to perceive an increase in price as indicative of something becoming more attractive, right? So this is actually one of the key focuses, focus points of my interview with Rob Arnott, and I would just highlight that I was interviewing him, not the reverse. So let's you know let's keep it all in perspective here. <laughs> but um, the 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 point that I would make is is that that actually that momentum reinforcement I also think is is a really critical factor. I put out on Twitter the other day that for all of the hullabaloo about the value cycle and the reflationary theme, et cetera, if I look at the world over the last 18 months, from the start of COVID until today, the NASDAQ is still leading, large cap growth is outperforming, value is still lagging, energy stocks are among the worst performers. International stocks where you have lower penetration of passive are not doing well. Emerging market before even the assist from China Was underperforming, right? And so, just not seeing any evidence that like anything really changed, which shouldn't surprise me because nothing really has changed, right? Every single day, there's more and more dominance of the passive market. We were talking briefly going into um, this interview, the dynamics of people focused on flows on a year-to-date basis, and a number of people have highlighted that ETF flows in particular are at all-time records, right? Again, the patterns haven't changed. We've continued to see redemptions from mutual funds, ETFs gain assets. Within the ETF asset gain, 65% of the money that is coming on a year-to-day basis has gone to two firms, BlackRock and Vanguard. I wish Simplify was one of those two firms, but the reality is, is we're way down the leagues, but climbing, right? So we were top quartile. I was pretty pleased with that. But the, the, the underlying features are not changing. And if I add in State Street and a couple of other players, like I'm north of 85% of all those flows are going basically to a very limited number of players who all embrace the exact same types of strategies. And there's almost no thought process that's actually going into it other than, hey, theoretically, this should work. Right. Um, Mike, for, for people who haven't uh, heard you talk about this
1: before, you've been one of the, I think it's fair to say, leading lights on the impact of passive indexation on markets. Give us the thumbnail sketch of what's happening and what the distortions you see are coming from passive indexation.
2: Um, and, and do all of that in 17 seconds or less, right? Um. So first, I refuse to believe that nobody has heard. That there's anybody out there who has not yet heard my thesis, but I've, I've worked pretty hard to make sure that's not the case. <laughs> um, but it, in the simplest form, there are two ways of thinking about markets. Markets either represent information or markets represent transactions. If markets represent transactions, which I firmly believe that they do, then you need to actually be following the flow of assets to understand what's driving markets. Um, Passive investing is not passive investing by its own definition, right? So if I go back to Bill Sharp's arithmetic of active management, the rationale for why passive investing should outperform his definition of passive is an investor who never transacts. Hmm. Right? They never transact, they simply hold. Well, anytime money tries to come into the market, or money tries to leave the market, by definition, it has to transact. It doesn't matter if you're doing so in the same structure or same um, uh, market cap alignment as the market overall. Your behavior is creating a feedback loop and a reinforcing action in the market. As passive becomes more and more dominant in terms of both the underlying asset construction and in the flows, you have to believe that that would have an impact. And that's what all of my research has focused on, is identifying and understanding how that impact both exists and how it changes over time, Mike. That was the the perfect Cliff's Notes version. I, I I thank you. <laughs> uh, talking of
1: Cliff's Notes versions and distortions, uh, one of the things I wanted to take a look at uh, was a a, a clip uh, from Brent Johnson uh, and Steven Van Meter from a show that aired on Real Vision earlier today about inflation and deflation. Let's take a look at the clip.
3: When I talk to people it's always amazing to me how certain they are that their view is correct. The inflationists are certain that their view is correct. The deflationists are certain that their views are correct. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry, you know, the people in crypto or Bitcoin are absolutely certain that they're correct. The people holding gold are absolutely certain they're correct. The people who believe in QE and pushing asset prices higher and in equities as a result are absolutely convinced they're correct. There's no nuance anymore. It's all or nothing. Everybody's all in on their thesis. Um, and I actually think it's a time that you shouldn't be certain about anything. I, I actually think it's it's a time where you should understand that while you are making a calculated bet or a or a, you have a belief on something that you believe strongly in that could play out, I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend going all in on it unless like you said earlier, you have, the ability to afford the drawdown or wait it out or have another source of income or have another basket of assets or whatever it is um i i, I just I, I find the whole certainty the bull market uncertainty to be rather odd at a time of great uncertainty
1: well there you have it the bull market uncertainty i think that's an absolutely brilliant phase uh, particularly about inflation and deflation since everyone i talk to is completely convinced of their position on this issue. Everyone believes they're
2: 100% correct. There's no need for humility. Uh, Mike, what do you think of that? Where are you on this? Uh, I mean, that's certainly how I feel as well. I'm 100% certain there's no need for humility. No, I, I, I think that Brent is 100% correct. And I think it's one of the things that tells you that regardless of, of um, the perception of sentiment or you know what euphoria measures or anything else will tell you, That we've returned to kind of the market of the 1998, 1999 environment where everyone is 100% certain what's going on, right? You know, the the value crowd is like, this is crazy. Um, This is all going to end in tears. The proponents are, you know, you don't understand, um, you know, okay, boomer sort of framework, right? On inflation, we have absolute certainty that there's money printing underway and Fed printer goes burr, and that's going to drive inflationary outcomes. And on the other side of it, you have the deflationists who are saying some variant of what you've heard me articulate over and over again, the demographic features, the high levels of debt, et cetera, create conditions under which that's not going to happen. I, by and large, you know, you'll know, you hear me often refer to times in history, but I'll like, talk about things that are happening in the 19th century or in the Roman Empire, et cetera. And I just want to emphasize the quantity of systematic passive investing in the Roman Empire was very low. right? So to to turn around and say I can take that and directly lift it into today's market and tell you what's going to happen from an inflation or anything else, radically different. The elements of surplus that exist in our society today, versus what the Romans had a fraction, and and even if you go back a hundred years, right, the degree of surplus that we have, in confronting this pandemic versus the the um, Spanish flu, for example, in 1918, you can't even begin to draw a a, a true comparison between the two, right? So. We are always at a point of inherent uncertainty. Um, I do find it really fascinating that you know, the bull market uncertainty is almost 10 years to the day from Chris Cole's famous bull market and fear speech, um, talking about the demand for hedging that existed in the 2010, 2011, 2012 time period when he and I first met and began talking about the fact that people were way overpaying for black, t- black swan insurance. Right. Today, you have this crazy certainty. But there is an interesting feature that exists as well, which is that volatility is no longer cheap, right? So it has become remarkably more expensive to hedge against deep downside drawdowns versus where we were in March 2020, for example. The quantity of people who are selling that insurance has deteriorated. There's more people who are doing it from a, a yield enhancement standpoint. We've started to see it come back. But it is a different market, and um, in particular, a lot of the behavior that I talked about going into the March 2020 time period, the high degree of correlation that occurs on market drawdowns, even on very modest market drawdowns, I think has begun to be reflected in some of the option pricing markets. Um, And while there's certainty in the world of Twitter, and I guess it's 280 characters and, and the commentary space. The options market reflects a little bit more uncertainty, and I think, that's, I think that's healthy in a lot of ways. Frustrating, because I'd love to find really, really cheap optionality, but much healthier than I think it was before. And that, that provides some support for the market. The gamma would be a good example of that. Well, you can find free certainty on Twitter. Everyone absolutely believes that they're correct. I have yet to pay for it, but yes, that's correct.
0: <laughs> You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.
1: Here's a question that comes to us uh, from YouTube. By the way, you can ask questions on YouTube or you can just tweet them to me at Ash Bennington on Twitter. Uh, the question is to you, Mike, a year or so ago, this is obviously someone who's been following you very closely. A year or so ago, you had postulated that rates of US treasuries go to zero. The 60-40 portfolio will collapse. Do you still believe
2: that to be true? Yes. I mean, the the simple the simple math is that the US is one of the few areas left that offers a positive nominal return, right? So forget what your inflation level is. So, I'll be candid and and break with um, uh, you know macro uh, narratives and just say I don't really think that real exists right. There is a measured real that shows up as CPI or PCE. We can have any number of people on who will tell you why those numbers are fake. Um, but the nominal has a very different characteristic to it because it actually reflects cash flow. Right. Right. So I, I can't actually say hey pay me cash flow associated with inflation but I can mandate that you pay me your cash flow associated with debt service or what you've actually earned. And so I think people tend to underappreciate that the nominal is different. The fact that the US remains in positive interest rate environment, positive nominal rate rate environment, is something that's been brought up by a number of people who talk about MMT or other components. It means that there's a continual flow of dollars over and above any form of QE or fiscal uh, surplus, et cetera. And that tends to be very supportive If that goes negative, right? Like I I just want to reorient people that the way people, the way the Fed thinks about interest rates, is in a cost of financing framework, and so their their presumption is the lower the interest rate, the more the demand to borrow, the more the demand to buy stuff in advance, the more the demand to invest. Unfortunately, the evidence is the exact opposite, right? And so what's referred to as the Euler coefficient, the the relationship between interest rates and consumption is pretty firmly negative in the empirical space. And I would suggest that the dominant feature when you have an aging population is lower interest rates means people need to save in more risk-free instruments, they need to preserve their future consumption, and that shows up as a reduction in consumption today. Um, The flip side to that, the positive impact of low interest rates is it drives bond prices higher, increasing collateral in portfolios. If interest rates go negative, right, one, you lose the income in any way, shape, or form, requiring people to save a lot more. The second is it fundamentally becomes a tax. right? So if I give a government agent, which is what we should call banks, $100, and they give me back $99, why wouldn't I just call that a tax? How is that stimulus in any way, shape, or form? That is a tax. When that occurs, when you break that relationship for a variety of reasons, I I continue to think that we'll find it very uncomfortable on the other side of zero. Yeah, we could do uh, an hour on that answer alone.
1: Uh, But I want to get to some other questions. This one comes to us from Zach Adam. Yo, Ash, ask Mike about how the Fed is using the repo and reverse repo market to circulate trillions per night and get unwanted bonds. This is apparently how they suppress the curve, he
2: wants to know. Um so I, I don't think that's correct. Um I'm, I'm trying to think of, of the best way to say this. Um so most of the activity around repo is actually designed to keep interest rates higher, right? We're we're pushing against the lower end of the band, not at the higher end of the band. And effectively what you're trying to do with the repo is to stimulate the ability to hold levered positions, allowing you to actually um create less risk on the collateral side, right? So effectively offering term financing and everything else. Um, It allows people to hold risk assets, not so much the riskless overnight assets. Um, So I, I, I think that that's certainly a narrative that's out there. What they're really trying to do is not to preserve low interest rates for the US government. They're trying to preserve low interest rates for the private sector. And on that front, I I agree that there's significant manipulation. There's a lot of concern around it. But we tend to think uh, in these terms that the Fed is manipulating rates uh, lower. I would candidly be concerned about the fact that that most of our manipulation is designed to support higher interest rates, i.e. demand for non-risk-free assets. Yeah. Let me ask this. I guess
1: this is an issue that's intimately related that comes up whenever we talk about the repo market. Uh, I guess it was September of 2019. There was a dramatic spike, uh, I think, 8 or 9%. uh, And there was a great deal of fear uh, in markets. As a consequence, the Fed had to come in and intervene in that market. Uh, Give us a sense of what happened there, because it's one of the questions that we get very often when this topic comes up.
2: So the easiest way to think about what happened there is, is is imagine you have a giant pool of levered exposure to those types of assets, right, to US short-term treasuries. Um, when you are holding that levered position, you need to have financing to maintain your position. And if you are forced to sell, you know, in, because you have lost access to your financing, it can adversely affect your entire position, causing a waterfall cascade so that you lose basically everything right? A very quick liquidity pulse can wipe players out with that degree of leverage. What happened in that environment is is that banks were confronting a need to reduce their lending activities going into the fourth quarter, into the end of December, tied to the Basel III dynamics, et cetera, right? So the quantity of capital that they wanted to hold was reduced. That effectively put at risk the financing of these very levered players, and set off the initial stages of that waterfall that the Fed then had to step in and support. So again, it goes back to this issue of what they're actually doing is supporting a levered exposure, which encourages risk-taking overall. It's effectively saying term financing is available for you. Yeah, and I think one of the things that confuses people about
1: this is because there's theoretically, or in practice, zero default risk. And people don't understand that when there's highly leveraged positions, the movement, the movement can have a dramatic impact on
2: liquidity. Yeah, it's it's important to remember that when you talk about liquidity events, it tends not to be associated with solvency events, right? So, if if I'm facing a condition, you know, think think of the biblical story of Jacob and Esau, right? The value of the stew that that Jacob served to Esau had nothing to do with the birthright, except for the fact that at exactly that moment, Esau was starving, having returned from a from a hunting trip, right? All, all you're doing is extracting the current price, right? So in a liquidity crunch, that current price can be radically different from a quote unquote fair value in a measured and slow environment. And that's what you see in that, right? It's it's similar to what happened in March 2020, right? Faced with significant uncertainty, what's the right price for raising cash? Who knows? Right.
1: And ultimately, it's the Fed that needs to backstop; otherwise, you get these cascading effects.
2: Um, Need is a strong phrase, but yes, the Fed is the the backstop that prevents the cascades that could significantly change the ownership structure of our society. And that's really what they're—that's really what you're you're protecting when you step in to prevent those waterfalls—is the forced change in ownership that tends to even further consolidate. Um, uh, ownership of financial assets or real assets in the hands of a few. Yeah, need is, of course, a very strong word. But I think there are a lot of people who believe uh, that
1: the Fed's role is to smooth over things like liquidity events rather than, you know, maybe, for example, buying Apple bonds.
2: I I, I generally think that's true. Um, I I do think that we continue to we we continue to bend the rules in that direction, right? And we're seeing this explicitly elsewhere around the world. There's a lot of excitement around, you know, uh, a new bill making its way through Congress in terms of U.S. industrial policy. We got to be really careful in understanding that we are increasingly engaged in picking winners and losers at the policy level, and that's that. You know, that's not great. I would prefer not to see it to see us. I would prefer not to see us do that. I mean, does that? It- carry with it the risk of a, a kind of Japanification
1: where you have the potential to have zombie companies and a lost generation
2: or generations? Um well I, I think we're already well down that path, right? I mean I I I joke about the fact that, you know, yesterday I went down to visit with some of my Simplify colleagues in Los Angeles, or actually in Irvine, and you know, we went to a WeWork which has Unbelievable offices, right? We 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 uh, use temporary space out of WeWork's when we when we travel. It's completely unsustainable. There's nobody else there, right? I mean, the offices were empty. I've got this levered, venture capital-funded real estate play, right? That's zombification. What happens when that goes away, right? What happens when those rates, when the, when those rental rates collapse? Um, you know, we've largely seen that suspended again. To go back to your intro. You know the 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 eviction moratorium is not just on the retail side.
1: Yeah, that really is the perfect pragmatic metaphor. I think the empty we work to understand what zombification can look like, Mike. I wish we could do a three-hour Real Vision Daily briefing, but this is the last question, and I think it's a great one. Uh, And it comes from to to us from Trevor, A.K.A. Maestro, and the question is, Mike, do bond vigilantes exist anymore?
2: I don't think they ever existed. Like, so I just I, I think that's nobody gets to demand the return that they want. Um, There can be a wide variety of reasons why markets are more fragile and seem to respond to that characteristic. But when we talk about the bond vigilantes, remember that the Fed was actually its own biggest vigilante, right? The Fed believed that low interest rates were stimulating a too hot economy and therefore stepped in, right? So it, did the bond market collapse in 1992, 1993 when you know Clinton tried to propose a huge increase in in uh, deficit spending? Not really, right? Go back and look at it; it wasn't that big of a deal. And interest rates themselves were actually remarkably high. Far more impactful was the unexpected hiking from the Fed in 1994, right? So, I just don't think they ever really existed in the way that that Eddie Ardini framed it. Um, I think it was much more a function of Fed policy. It's actually a fascinating paper. I've shared it with Shri and a few others. There was a, uh, an undergraduate thesis that was put out that actually examined the role of the Fed's reaction function in terms of asset price setting. And I thought it was a, a brilliant paper. Um, but I think that's exactly what actually happened. The Fed used to fight inflation. And so when things got a little bit hotter, the fear was that the Fed would hike interest rates that would drive bond prices down. And so you want to trade ahead of it. Today, the exact opposite is the case, right? If things look bad, then the expe- your expectation is, is that the Fed is going to cut interest rates if things look really good. Maybe they'll hike them in a couple of years. Who knows, right? Um, but it feels very asymmetric in the other direction. MIKE always such a pleasure. We always enjoy you coming on Revolution Daily Briefing.
1: Thank you, Ash. It's always a pleasure to be invited. Thanks for watching, everybody. And thanks for your questions.